Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if that is you, if you really want to achieve more, do more, have more, see more, feel more, and live a better life faster, then this is the episode for you. Because on today's show, we talk with Chris Raymond from Unconditional Finance, all about how to maximize your borrowing capacity so that you can continue to buy more properties faster and achieve your achieve your financial goals way sooner. So we're talking about all kinds of different stuff, what Chris, Chris's background was, how that kind of shaped his role as a mortgage broker and what that actually means for the clients that he works with. We also talked about some real tactical things like what, the, what impact do yields have on borrowing capacity, um, what to look for in a mortgage broker. Uh, you know, We talked about even lent borrowing and trusts and siloing debts. We talked about that. That kind of stuff. There's lots of nuggets in here. Way too many to way too many to mention. Um, and I think if you go through this with a fine tooth comb, you're going to find dozens and dozens of interesting tidbits that are going to shape your ability to accomplish more and to become a much more empowered investor and to go further, faster, better, stronger, which after all is probably what we all want. Um, So if that sounds like you, and if you want to build a prolific, profitable property portfolio and go to the moon with this kind of thing and have a good time doing it, then this is the episode for you. Now, at the end of the episode, Chris talks about how to get in touch with him, and that's great, and I highly recommend that. But if you actually want help to uh, facilitate yourself building a property portfolio that is going to help you to achieve your life goals and live a life by design and do that up six times faster than traditional investing, then I encourage you to reach out. Just send us an email, hello at dashdot.com.au, or go to theinvestorlab.com.au and hit the contact us section and reach out to us and we'll get back to you ASAP. But without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. I really enjoyed this episode and I'm confident you're going to enjoy it too. We've really touched on a lot of great stuff. And you know, just a reminder that you know, real estate investing is a game of finance with a few houses thrown in the middle. So understanding how to master the game of finance is the key to you achieving what you want in your property portfolio. And I really think this episode is going to help. So it is my absolute pleasure to present this to you. Let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is a very special guest. It's Chris Raymond from Unconditional Finance. And today we're going to be talking about all things finance, how to make sure that you can, you're extending your borrowing capacity, making sure you don't get stuck, what to do and how to be a much more successful investor by playing the game of finance. Because as we all know, that real estate investing is a game of finance with a few houses thrown in the middle. Chris, good morning. To the show. How are you? I'm well. I'm very well. Yourself? It's a uh, depending on when the listeners are listening to this, but for you and I, it's a, a nice and early start to the morning. But uh, yeah, pleasure to be here this morning. So thank you for the invite. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, um, obviously, we've been working together for a little while. Um, so I, you know, I I know a little bit about who you are and what you're doing and all of that kind of stuff. But um, we have to naturally assume that most people are like, "Who's Chris? Who's this mm. guy? What's going on here?" So why don't you give us a little? Why don't you give us a little bit of a background? I'd love to kind of dig into, you know, start with, you know, who you are and what do you do? What's unconditional finance? What's your role? All that kind of stuff. And then I want to get into a bit of a backstory because I'm. I'm interested in uh, in understanding how you got to this current position, but let's start let's start at the top. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so unconditional finance, obviously a mortgage and uh, finance company. We're actually mm. based here in Sydney, but we do service clients all over Australia. Um, been in operation around four years now. Unconditional finance. I've been broking probably around six years now. 
But my banking experience started way back in the early 2000s. So I got out of high school and it was a little bit lost in terms of what I wanted to do, but always knew I wanted to work in an office, always, you know, good with numbers and sort of uh, found my way, you know, working with a, a bank. And then hang on, hang on, hang on a second. What do you, what do you mean? You, you always wanted to work in an office. That's a very interesting aspiration. And I'll put, throw in a little anecdote because we had a guy come to, uh, he applied to work with us, incidentally ended up working with us because he's a yep. really great guy. But he, I said, why do you want to work in real estate? He said, oh, because because all real estate agents wear nice suits. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested why your aspiration was to work in an office. What's, good, what's all that about? Good question. I'm not, I'm not really sure. My parents always worked in offices. My dad hmm. ran his own business um, as well. So, and I always thought, and no disrespect to the tradies out there, I, I just didn't want to be a tradie. I think um, what scared me away, work experience during school and getting on mm-hmm. the tools for a week. And I thought, no, definitely not for myself. So that's sort of how I navigated um, towards, you know, more more an office environment. But yeah, yeah, that's sort of where my finance background began, started with the bank um, and really started just entry level, early 2000s, you know, doing loan documents once a loan's approved, dealing with solicitors. Did you, did, you, pro- did you know that you always wanted to get into the lending side? Because like, You've sort of said banking and that uh, noting that you kind of said you're a little lost and didn't really have a lot of direction. Yep. Was it just generally like you were interested in working with numbers? Could you have almost become an accountant? What was it about banking? What was it about banking that was interesting? And and what was it accidental that you ended up in lending or was it deliberate? Uh, a little bit deliberate, yeah. So, I mean, could I become an accountant? Probably no. It's definitely not something that I'm passionate about. Um <laughs> But I mean, yeah, a little bit of both. So yes, I did sort of fall into it. Always wanted to work in a bank. What part of a bank? I was a little bit unclear, you know, fresh out of high school. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to uni? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? So yeah, I got my first role uh, with ING Bank, um, actually. Mm -hmm. So started with them and really learned the ropes in the early 2000s. And what I mean by that is I, I started in the back office. I was dealing with settlements. I was dealing with loan documents and really started to work my way up and Spent a couple of years there, and then I moved across to a major bank. Um, I've never worked in a retail branch. I've always worked in third party. And what that means is third party dealing with mortgage brokers. So since the early 2000s, I've been in and around that environment dealing with mortgage so, brokers. So what, that, so what that means for the layman, and just make sure I've got this correct. So yep. mortgage brokers are independent, um, are independent businesses, agents, or whatever, who then in order to access finance for their clients, they then go to lenders and banks, right? And then on the bank side, you you were on the bank side and you were essentially, you were the ones that were, your clients were mortgage brokers basically. And they would go to you and say, hey, I've got, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith over here who wants to buy a house. Here's their application. Yep. And you you would be on that side, like processing it from on the, from the bank side, looking at the, at the applications. Is that sort of right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah I mean, okay. mortgage breaking, it's been around since probably the early 90s, but it really took off sort of early 2000s. I think, you know, Aussie John came into the scene, set up his own mortgage breaking company, and it really grew from there. But yeah, my, my role was essentially working for a bank, dealing with mortgage brokers. Um, the mortgage broker obviously chose that bank. And as I mentioned before, Goose, mm. I really started in the back office. So learning the ropes of lending, learning settlements, learning how documents are issued, et cetera, et cetera a couple of years in that department. And then I actually moved up to assessing home loans. So looking at mm. deals, looking at pay slips, putting deals together, liaising with mortgage brokers, liaising with clients, liaising with stakeholders, mortgage insurers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's really how I began my lending career. 
Um, And I did that all the way up. I spent a couple of years overseas working for a mortgage broking company over there as well, but came back, um, continued sort of working for a bank up until around 2015. Yeah. And why, what made you, what made you jump the fence? Like, why did you decide to get, go switch sides, basically? Not, not, not as in they're, they're, they're opposing each other, but what made you jump the fence from being on the banking side to being on the client side? What, what triggered that? Good question. Good question. <laughs> probably dealing with brokers day in and day out thinking, hang on, I could, I could actually probably do this slightly better. So, well, um, well, well yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested in that. Like, what, you know, obviously, maybe not specifics, but like, what kind of things did were you seeing that made you go, "Hang on a second, these guys are not doing this well, and I could maybe do this better"? Like, what was the what was some of the stuff that really kind of prompted that? I guess I would say experience. So, and and there's lots of experience. I've just given you a background of my experience. So, yep. probably the biggest thing that I, I saw a lot of new to industry people becoming mortgage brokers. It was a very at that time, low level level of entry to actually get into the mm. into the industry. So, I was probably coaching a lot of brokers on how to structure loans, how to mm. read pay slips, and they were then communicating those messages back to their clients. So that was really sort of the first point where I thought, well, "Hang on a minute, you know, maybe I actually want to be getting on the other side of the fence. Maybe I want to be actually assisting clients directly." So um, the other part was the motivation, I guess, to sort of own and run my own business as well. So. Um, that was one of the goals in terms of sort of moving from a, a big four bank pay-as-you-go yep. position to obviously moving across, you know, to a, yep. a mortgage-breaking career. I'm interested to know um, what your, like before you started the business, what was your vision of why you wanted to start a business, right? Because I think for most people, they think, oh, let's start a business. I'll be my own boss and I'll do all this kind of cool stuff. And then you start the business and it's like you're it's like you're on a roller coaster and getting put through a meat grinder at the same time and it's it's wild and intense and d- tell me a little bit about what made you <laughs> tell me a little bit about what made you decide to want to be a business owner and then how did reality shape up against the against the original dream good question very good question <laughs> Real, reality and as you would know yourself goose is a little bit different to uh i guess the dreams you have at night sitting there thinking yes i'm actually going to do this and I've often said we get training and I've got good experience in training to be a mortgage broker. Mm. I've had no training in terms of running a business. Um, yeah, it's funny just, that, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is, it is. You're thrust into it and I guess you learn on, you learn on the job and it's, and we'll probably touch um, base on it a little bit more into this podcast, but it's about building a team around you, you yeah. know, building a good accountant, building a good solicitor, um, yeah. building sort of good, reliable people that you can sort of, you know, lend, lend on for advice and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I was quite lucky in terms of my banking business development background actually assisted me getting, I guess, runs on the board quite quickly. And what I mean by that is I was quite proactive. I was out there in the market. I was actually attending open homes. I was knocking on doors. You know, I was, I was stalking people like yourself on, on Facebook and LinkedIn and things like that. So being very proactive, I often hear a lot of brokers saying, you know, it's pretty quiet. I've got no business. But I guess they don't have the skills or the drive to actually get out there. I mean, tell me how many brokers attend in a pre-COVID environment, attend open homes, hand out. Your I've, I've never, just to be clear, I've never yep. heard of a, I've never heard of a mortgage broker attending an open home to hand out business cards. It's yep. the first time I've ever heard that. Yep, yep. And I mean, a lot of these agents have relationships already, but from those activities, you only need one or two relationships to build on the back of that, to build on the back of the LinkedIn connections, to build on the back of the the mm. Facebook connections to actually start to grow. So, yeah, so my background, as I said, in banking sort of helped me. My background in business development helped me sort of 
you know, get runs on the board quite quickly, build relationships and start seeing clients. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Now, uh, unconditional finance, it, one of the things that makes you guys a little bit unique, I think, is the fact that you only do uh, residential, uh, residential real estate, right? Predominantly, yeah. I would say yeah. probably 98, 99%. 98, 99%. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Yep. So uh, what I mean what I mean by that is, you, is I, look, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you know, you tend, it t- seems to be quite specialized towards, towards that. I think that's one of the, one of the unique factors. Um, I'm interested, I'm interested in your, like your property story. What, when did you start getting interested in property? Was, was the property interest uh, an offshoot of um, first the banking and then being associated with mortgage brokers and going, oh, this is an interesting thing, this mortgage broking thing. And then from that, you then got interested in property or actually was it a little bit the other way around? Like where did the, where did the, where does, for you, where does property sit in the, in the development process for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a, a multi-property portfolio and I guess the, the love of property, it's a good question. Where did it actually come from? Cause yeah. Um, love my parents and, and no disrespect to my parents, um, <laughs> but they didn't, you know, own investment properties. Um, yeah. My dad did it, you know, at times throughout his sort of early years. But um, looking as I was approaching retirement, they didn't actually own any investment properties. So mm. um, they are retired now, you know, they're living a, quite a comfortable life. However, it just sort of, you know, something sort of ticked inside my brain. So I guess from about 18, I was really interested in property. Um, and as I mentioned before, the, the early banking career, I used to sort of travel from Western Sydney all the way through, you know, all the way into town, all the way into North Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and on those train trips, I used to read all the property magazines, um, mm-hmm. you know, Australian Property Investor. And yeah, um, I think it was two or three at the time, you know, next to me, you're reading the Zoo magazine, but I'll be reading the Property Investing magazine. So that's where mm-hmm. the, um, the sort of the drive in terms of, hey, this is, this is really interesting to me. This is sort of what I want to do. And this is sort of where I want to go in terms of, um, you know, myself personally, but also sort of helping clients as well. And yeah, I bought my, um, just for your listeners out there, Goose, I bought my first investment property at 23. Um, wow. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, on the back of that, I've been then be able to, you know, leverage into other properties, you know, pull out equity, mm. use that equity for deposit and costs on, um, on future purchases. Yeah. Interesting. As an investor, so for you personally, or and based on your belief systems or whatever, yep. would you, what do you, you know, capital growth versus cash flow. What are your What are your thoughts? <laughs> Good question. Good question. I do laugh. Um, sorry, didn't didn't mean to laugh at the question, but yeah, we get this one quite often. And I mean, it does depend. It does depend. I mean, you do need a good mix of both. Um, however, I will say at the end of the day, the thing that's going to hinder you from growing your portfolio is mm. access to credit. Um, mm. So you do need, you know positive cash flow properties in your portfolio to continue lending. Without that, you know, I hear negative gearing this, negative gearing that, I get a great tax refund at tax time. Fantastic. Negative gearing means your investment property is running at a loss. If your investment property is running at a loss of say 15,000 per year, how many properties can you afford to continue Mm. tipping money in throughout the year to continue to keep them afloat? So yeah, I would say initially you want a good foundation you definitely want cash flow positive properties to begin with, and then you can start yep. to diversify your portfolio in terms of, hey, let's look at more, you know, higher um, capital growth type properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an it's an interesting one, right? Because um, obviously, we always talk about cash flow positive properties in in high growth areas, and and that's really that underpins the kind of secret sauce in how our clients get such good results because we get growth and cash flow, right? Correct. Um, 
and I'm a big, I'm very anti-negative gearing and stuff like that. But if you can get your portfolio to a position where it could support a, uh, a negative cash flow property, then there's intrinsically no, theoretically, no problem with it as long as yep. that decision wasn't going to stop you from being able to move forward. And I think that right. this is kind of where most people get stuck. I mean, fundamentally, I think negative gearing is stupid. Yep. But let's just say you've got a big portfolio and maybe you've got a couple of commercial properties in there, et cetera, et cetera, and you're pumping out tons of cash flow. Yep. Your portfolio can absorb a bit of a loss on one or two properties, then might not be such a bad idea. But what do you do? You think that that's it's kind of a loaded question, I guess maybe. But I wanted to ask this. Um, I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, yep. what do you think? Do you do you think that that is the number one reason, or what do you think the number one reason is that most property investors never get past one or two properties? Because statistically speaking, statistically speaking, ninety percent of property investors never get past two properties. And also, in a very pragmatic way. Uh, most investors to achieve the life of freedom, choice, and abundance that they want probably need five or so. Um, so joining those two things together, it means that most most investors, 90% of property investors actually ne- are never going to achieve their financial goals. And yep. I'm interested in your viewpoint on why that might be. Yeah, I mean, probably two main reasons. So access to credit is one. Yep. Um and this is where we sort of position ourselves as sort of experts, you know, working with investors, working with investing, investment companies like yourself. Um, I'm an investor. My team of brokers are investors as well. So we're quite passionate about investing. Um, and it is a minefield out there. I mean, to navigate, I think there's 300 plus lenders and credit unions and things like that. It is a minefield in terms of, you know, which lenders are more investment focused, which lenders are more investment strategic, which lenders offer higher borrowing capacities. Which lenders offer niches where you know they may exclude certain debts to to, to allow you to continue purchasing property? So mm. I see it all the time. Um, you know, clients might go to their bank, or they might go to a mortgage broker that's not investment specific, and they you know they come to us and say, "Hey, we're, we're sort of maxed out. We can't continue growing past two. Um, and I mm. probably get one or two cases a week. Goose, um, some for your clients in terms of your teams. Yeah, we look. We you know we take a I guess, a forensic look at their current asset and financial position. Um, yep. And they're leaving 500, 800, 900, sometimes up to a million dollars on the table purely because they don't know which lenders to navigate to. So that's mm. that's part one. Um, part two is, I guess, deposits, equity is another mm. piece as well. So, you know, often clients save their deposit up for that first investment property. They tip it in and then they're sort of hamstrung in terms of what they do. So little strategies, adding, you know, adding, 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 sort of value-add um, things to your property. Mm. So cosmetic renovations, bathroom, painting, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Another thing that we do for a lot of our clients is we're quite strategic in terms of ordering mm. multiple valuations on a property. And what I mean by that is all the banks instruct their own independent valuers, but sometimes you can get variances of up to 10%. So we mm. as- Even your, more sometimes, Even right? more sometimes, correct. Yeah, so, so we as your strategic mortgage broker can potentially manufacture equity which can can then be used, I should say, for that next investment purchase. Um, another little point as well on the, the valuation piece there, Goose, is mm. using desktop valuations. Um, and mm. what that means, I guess, for the listeners and the viewers out there, a desktop valuation is basically a computer valuation that some banks use. A panel valuation is obviously when a valuer actually goes, you know, knocks on your door, goes in, takes a few photos and things like that. So mm. we understand some banks... Um, except desktop valuations only. And some banks actually have higher 
desktop valuations and what the panel value valuations actually come back mm. at as well. So just yeah. another little strategic move where we know which lenders, hey, let's do a desktop valuation with lender A. This is going to yeah. come in, you know, $50,000 higher or so than a full panel valuation with lender B. And instantly mm. we've got more equity that the client can keep into that next purchase. So they're probably, I guess, income and, you know, equity. How do we actually manufacture equity? They're probably the two biggest hindrances on, um, you know, clients continue yeah it's you know, yeah it's interesting because um yeah. yeah it's interesting because I, I i agree i agree with you and just to probably yep. re- replay it back in slightly different words um you know like as long as you're buying good properties in good locations you're probably going to get capital growth and uh over time over time actually that the ability to access the, the capital that you have in your portfolio will not be the restricting factor. Yep. The ability, the ability to continue to get debt, right, is going to be the restricting factor and the deciding factor between whether you can go again or not. Correct. Um, which is why you know fu- fundamentally, if you if you purely just chase cash flow and you just buy in far flung tiny country towns with no economic fundamentals and you know that don't aren't going to grow and stuff like that, just chasing yield, you're probably going to go nowhere. Yep. Vice, ver- vice versa, if you try and um, you know, only buy properties which are, you know, you know, I always say like in Bondi or whatever, which is awesome, but, you know, you're going to be negative cash flow. You're probably not going to be able to borrow it again. So it's about finding that balance. How do you get growth and cash flow to keep moving yeah, forward? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, you touched on a point there, access to credit. Access mm. to credit is the number one thing here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Know, yeah, sorry, mate. You can, you, I sat on my Yeah, yeah, no, yeah you, go on. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I sat on my clients every day. You can have all the equity in the world. You can have $2 million of equity sitting in that property, mm. but if you don't have the ability to access that equity or that credit, you will not continue to grow your portfolio. So, you know, yeah. as an investor, I think we need to change our mindsets. You know, the banks often shove down interest rate, interest rate, low interest rate. You said on Channel News, Channel 7 News, I should say, every night, it's about having the ability to to gain further access to credit, which will continue. Yeah. And the access to credit thing is really interesting, right? Because yeah. access to credit, you've got like the technical access to credit thing, like am I qualified to be able to get more credit? Yeah. But I think one of the things that I've seen, and I, you know, I'm on the receiving end of, of you know, dealing with and speaking with thousands of, uh, of, of investors, one yeah. of actually the biggest problems that I see is that their partner i.e. the broker they're using is actually inhibiting their access to credit, right? Because Correct. if you think that if you think the mortgage broker is like the gatekeeper, so that so 99% of property investors are going to use a mortgage broker, yep. they'll go to their mortgage broker and say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Broker, can I get can I get some more money? I want to go buy some more houses. And essentially that person becomes the vessel of access to credit. And so if they are not thinking strategically, if Correct. they have too much of a uh, bias towards one specific lender because they get advantageous treatment or whatever the case may be, or if they are just not, if they're just not prepared to, you know, go the extra mile, that can stuff people up. Because I personally know people who are in a really, really, really good financial position, yeah, uh, and their brokers are saying, "Oh, look, maybe you could buy one more property." And yep. I, I know one of our clients uh, a while ago. When she came to us, she said, "No, look, I've got a mortgage broker, and he said that I he said that I can um, buy a three hundred thousand dollars house, and that's it." And yep. I had a look at her situation, and she had like you know million bucks worth of equity and all of this other kind of stuff. Yep. And sub- subsequently, by changing broker, she's been able to uh, access over a million dollars worth of buying power and all of this kind of stuff. And she's now building a, a scalable property portfolio, which she and she's able to transform her life in a way that she never would have done had she had the wrong partner, stayed with that wrong partner. Yep. And so I really think that that piece is is uh, a missing a missing bit. People think like mechanically, 
well, what is my income? What's my debt to income ratio and all that kind of stuff. But as you mentioned, there's hundreds of lenders. So finding someone who's actually going to open that opportunity pipeline rather than throttle it based on their own concern, concerns and considerations, I think is a key. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, as, as a broker, we have access to, you know, 50 plus lenders. But statistics say the average broker uses around six lenders on their panel only. So yeah. I often um, see four. I often see four. You often see yeah. four. There you go. Yeah. So, and, and you know, I'm not painting every broker with the same brush, of course. No. A lot of good brokers out there. Um, but it's around knowing which lenders are more strategic, which lenders are more investment mm-hmm. focused. Um, the other point as well, Goose, is just it's as a customer, as an investor, try not to focus on the interest rate. We get this client, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, we get this question all the time. Chris, all oh, the interest rate's a little bit higher. It's not about the interest rate when it comes yeah. to investment lending. It's about access to credit, how I've, which I've said before. So a- Absolutely. It's access to, not cost of, within reason, right? Right. Within, within reason. Like, for you've what you've got what people have got to understand understand where they're borrowing is what is their yep. hurdle rate yep so for a business for example if a business is a high growth business and it's growing at let's say 100% a year right and it's just like you know some maybe it's like Atlassian or something like a tech company if they were to borrow money on a 30% interest rate per annum which yep. sounds insane right but if they were able to borrow money and then get a, a higher return on that capital than 30% because they could deploy it and then grow, then that the cost of capital would, would become insignificant, right? Based on the total, Correct. based on the total return. Correct. Now, more, you know, property investing is a little different. It's not a fast growth company like Alaskan or whatever. Um, <laughs> but the same, the same premise is true. I see so many people who get stuck and they're like, oh, you know, do you think I should change my broker? Because, you know, he says that it's this percent, and I've seen advertised somewhere else, somewhere else, some other percent. And going back to it, it's it's really about who can get you the most amount of money, correct? The fastest and the yep. easiest, right? There's the three characteristics. Correct. Now, you've got to understand there's probably a limit, right? If you're if you're getting, you know, if you're starting to go, if the average, you know, interest rate is three percent, and the only way that you can get access to capital to buy a property is, you know, over seven percent. All right, you probably got to consider really have a real good think about whether that's going to be practical and whether that's in your risk profile and you're going to be able to beat that hurdle rate. But in a real sense, usually the variance isn't that much. We're talking about, you know, f- fractions of a percent. We are. People seem we to get, up, get upset about it. Yeah. And often these lenders that will allow you to, to lend more money, I mean, we're talking sub 4% interest rates. So historically, yeah. they've never been lower. So, um, and I mean, the other benefit is given it's an investment loan, all investment debt is tax deductible as well. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, just to, to the listeners out there, definitely don't focus so much different for your owner-occupied home, but for your investment portfolio, to continue growing that portfolio, it's all about access to credit within reason, as we just discussed. So Totally. And that's a, such a cool thing that you just said, right? And this is something that so many investors forget, right? The operating, the operating expenses or OPEX of yep. your investment property are tax uh, they're tax deductible expenses. That doesn't mean that you get them for free, right? It doesn't mean that you get all your money back because some people mistake that tax tax deduction means to get all my money back. No, but let's just say you've bought a property and um, and let's just say that you're paying ten thousand dollars of interest on your mortgage for that year, and let's yeah. say your marginal tax rate, i.e., your income tax rate, is let's say thirty percent, just for the point of the discussion. Yep. Right. Then you should be able to claim back. of the $10,000 of interest paid, correct? Correct. 
All right now that that's a massive contribution to the to the expansion of your portfolio and in real cash terms. Now, when we look at properties, we look at are they cash flow positive with before any deductions? You know, are they going to wash their own face? But then when you start taking thirty percent of interest, thirty percent of thirty um, percent of your expenses, all of that kind of stuff, and getting all of that cash back at tax time, yep. that's critical. Like that's massive, particularly yep. as you start to build out a multi property portfolio. Yes, correct. Yeah, everything you've said there is correct. So, yeah, so ability to access credit is one thing. Um, I mean, the other thing as well is, I guess, advanced, more advanced strategies as well for the more advanced mm. investor is, you know, looking at your, your structures, you know, what, what's your property being purchased in? Is it being purchased in a trust? Um, mm. You know, different lenders in different departments, um, not saying all through the residential space, but there is the ability to, if you've got lending in trusts or if you've got lending in other company. Mm. or illegal entities that certain banks, certain certain niche policies will allow you to exclude those liabilities if they're washing their own face. And what I mean by that is if they are profitable. So if you're owning property or a property portfolio inside of that trust, mm. there are certain lenders where we can actually get them to exclude the lending in that trust if we're coming to the bank for a new purchase in a separate entity yeah. or, or in, in your individual name as well. So there's there's more strategic um, yeah methods as well to sort of accessing credit. Yeah. Yeah, and just to just to play that back because yeah. that's so it is such an interesting thing, and a lot I've actually had a lot of uh, pushback <laughs> from people who don't understand as like accountants and stuff yeah. uh, who might think that's not true. But the the point the point is that if you invest, if you so this is not for everyone. I'll, I'll put a caveat to this at the end. You're but right. if you if you build a property portfolio in a trust, and if that yeah. and if the property is in that trust, and the trust as a whole, i.e. as a business, yep. is cash flow positive, i.e. profitable on a cash basis and will have an income tax basis on the on the income that you produce, right? Uh, if that is the case, then that, that, that company or that business could be deemed as a standalone entity and therefore the liabilities within that entity could be siloed from the liabilities of you as an individual. And what that, but but the caveat to that being, i.e., is so the caveat to that being that not every lender is going to do that, right? right? So there might there might only be, I don't know, maybe like five five to ten different lender, and you you would know better than me, but maybe there's maybe there's only you know, half a dozen to a dozen lenders who would accept that type of policy. You're so right. you've got to understand when and how to do that kind of thing because yep. I think one of the big I think one of the big things is. You know, you could end up boxing yourself into a corner if you said that's my whole strategy. You yep. might actually limit yourself to the number of lenders you can use. So you got to got to kind of be thinking three levels deep and with multiple vectors to go. Okay, how am I going to set this up for success over the long term? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, it's it's probably around four or five lenders that can potentially look at it. Um, yeah. and it's 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 about like I mentioned before, Goose. It's about partnering. With a strategic mortgage broker that's going to understand mm. your long-term plans, not not the mortgage broker that's looking at three or four lenders only and saying, "Sorry, you know, Mister or Mrs. Client, you're now boxed in." Um, yeah. I'm not saying you know there's ways for everyone to continue growing your portfolio, but we do see it daily. There's money being left on the table with incorrect lender selections, with mm. incorrect structures, with you know a brokers not understanding or not necessarily brokers, but brokers or bankers not mm. necessarily understanding those more strategic policies that mm. will allow you, Mr. and Mr. Customer, to continue growing that portfolio. Yeah. Well, on the theme of uh, accessing credit, right? Yeah. And on 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 that on that general general line of line of thinking, what what impact, right? Because there's a lot of this is a bone of contention as well with a lot of people. What impact do yields or 
put it another way, the gross revenue of a property, what impact does that actually have on your buying capacity? Because some people would argue that, oh, you know, it doesn't really do anything for you and it's a fool's errand and stuff. But, but you know, based on conversations that I've had with you, and in fact, yep. just, just putting it out there, we've had three of our clients in the last two weeks, um, some of them working with you, but some uh, some working with other brokers as well, yep. uh, who have actually come back and said that their borrowing capacity has increased, right? Yep. So when they started, their borrowing capacity was X. We've then helped them to buy a property and now they actually have more borrowing capacity than when they started. Correct. Right? Yep. <laughs> that, that, seems, that seems like madness, right? Because most people believe that there'll be a degradation rate consistently. Um, now, I'm sure it's not an absolute, so I'm interested to understand if you could talk to that for a minute. Yeah, so yields do play an important part in, I guess, and as we said before, Goose, you know, it's all about asset selection. You know, mm. I think your initial investment property portfolio, it's, it's looking for those cash flow positive, you know, properties, which obviously have a higher yield because the impact the yield has on a, a borrowing capacity, I mean, there are caveats to this. Um, there's what, looking- 400 lenders, so none of this is going to apply to every one of them, right? So There are, there are. But you're looking on average, I mean, every sort of, you know, $10,000, um, let's say gross um, rental income that you're achieving in your mm. properties, that's going to add to, you know, around $50,000, $70,000 in additional borrowing power. Yeah, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop, stop you there because... Yep. What that sounds to me like is we're talking about the debt to income ratio, right? Is that yep. right? Yes. So for for those, maybe we could talk to that for a minute. So, but no. for for a lot of people don't understand what debt to income ratio is. But put yep. it, put it simply, if you earn a hundred thousand dollars of income from your job, yep. let's just say you've got a job and you earn a hundred thousand dollars salary, yep. lenders will assess your ability to access debt based on. Aside, they'll factor in your your current expenses and whatever, but yep. also, but if but baseline will be like if you earn a hundred grand, we'll we'll offer you a multiple of that hundred thousand dollars in terms in in available debt. Correct, and that that multiple is usually between five and eight, and depending. sort of yep. yeah, depending on depending on the lender. Yeah, um, but a more common mental reference point seems to be sort of six or seven yep. times. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah that's fair. That's fair. Yep. That's correct. Yeah. So I mean, on, on average, if you earn a hundred thousand dollars, the lender should be willing to lend, you know, to lend you roughly around six hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And so on that basis, every for every dollar you increase your income on your personal income statement, or in other words, you know, taxable income or money coming in, the revenue you generate, however you want to phrase it. For every dollar you earn, that should have a multiple on it. So Correct. if you were to buy a property that produced, let's say you bought a $500,000 property yep. on a, that was yielding at 6% gross, that would mean that it has a $30,000 gross revenue. So that means for the whole year, you yep. would receive $30,000 worth of rent. Yep. Right. And on that basis, depending on the lender, the lender would then look at that thirty thousand dollars of gross income and say, yep. "Oh, that's more income." So you, you Johnny, might have a hundred thousand dollars salary, but then also you're going to add another thirty thousand dollars of of revenue to your personal income, which yep. would take the total amount from you know. Let's just use let's use five just for simple yep. maths. Let's use yep. a five times debt to income ratio. Yep. So. If you had $100,000, if Johnny started with $100,000 of income, he might be able to access $500,000 worth of debt. 
yep. than if he was to buy a, a, a $500,000 property that produced $30,000 of gross revenue. The yep. banks would then look at that and say, well, we'll give you five times as well on the 30000 So then that would increase his borrowing capacity by another 150000 So the total available debt that Johnny would have then would be not 500000 but actually 650000 Correct. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, obviously, they will factor in the liability as well that obviously Johnny's got. But yes, that, that is correct. And where, where we mentioned before about being strategic, I mean, often the banks shade the rental income. So they'll only use yeah. 80%, but we do have lenders that will take 100% of rental income. So what you just explained there, Goose, in theory is correct. So mm. higher yielding properties will increase your borrowing you know, capacity, will increase your borrowing power, will increase, I guess, your ability to access credit. Yeah. Um, the way that I like to say it's just going to give people the, the so they don't think it's some kind of like crazy scheme. It stretches your borrowing capacity. It stretches your borrowing capacity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so rather rather than necessarily, I'm just going to get a continuously, you know, a, a fountain of youth kind of thing when it comes to property, <laughs> and I'll just never run out of borrowing. It stretches it. It elongates it. Allows you to do more. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And as I said before, knowing which lenders will take a hundred percent of that mm. and multiple. You know, and then a multiple of that will obviously stretch your borrowing capacity, as you mentioned. Yeah, totally. So, what are some of them? Just quickly, like, what are some? What are some things? Like, that all sounds good, but not obviously not everyone actually does get the maximum benefit from their potential um, borrowing, their potential ability to borrow. So, where do some people go wrong, or where, what are some things that people get stuck on? Like, yep. you know, liabilities, expenses. Does it really matter if I have Netflix? What about if I own my own home? Like, where do some where do some people get stuck on that, or where do they maybe where are they maybe accidentally tripping themselves up in their own access to credit? Yeah, good question, Goose. I mean, rule number one to me is we always look at the client's personal liability. So anything outside a home loan or investment debt. So, you know, car like credit cards, personal loans, um, you know, hex debts, things like that. We're, what we're seeing a lot of is afterpay accounts, obviously. Um, we recently saw that floated and saw how well afterpay and those type of companies are doing as well. So, I mean, that has a significant impact on your borrowing capacity. I mean, for the viewers out there today, I mean, every $10,000 credit card limit we're just talking about a multiple of stretching your income on a high yielding property, but this is decreasing your borrowing capacity. So every $10,000 credit card limit that you have, even if you do pay off the you know the balance monthly, you're decreasing your borrowing capacity by around that forty to fifty thousand mark. So, so that's 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 which has a huge impact. It's massive. It's massive. Yeah, I mean pre-COVID environment, we used to see many clients that get all the points purely so they get their Qantas points and their Virgin points mm. and things like that, but. Yes, Chris, but I clear the uh, the credit card weekly or monthly. However, the bank is looking at the actual credit card limit. Yeah, that, the that, facility amount, the facility amount, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. So, so that's one. Um, structuring your loan correctly is two. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, all right. So, we've cleared all the personal debt. Uh, is your loan structured in the best possible way to maximise? your income to maximize you paying down that bad debt as quickly as possible. What do, you, what do you what do you mean by that? Your do you mean a home loan or do you mean uh investment loan? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I was just gonna say so, so what I classify as bad debt is your owner occupied property. Interesting. So yeah, so uh, viewers out there today may have heard the term good debt, bad debt, good debt's investment debt, it's tax deductible as we mentioned before. Yeah. Bad debt is your owner occupied property. So we want to make sure that your loans are structured in the best possible way that your income He's working in the best possible way to, you know, to, to reduce that bad debt as quickly as possible. Having offset accounts set up, having a salary going in there directly, having the rental income from your property portfolio going there directly, having yeah. any sort of tax refunds, et cetera, et cetera, go, you know, into that offset account and actually pay down 
that bad debt as quickly as possible, then that gives you the ability then to what we call debt recycle and then take out future equity, which then becomes tax deductible to continue growing your portfolio. Yeah, that, yeah, debt recycling is such an important one for people that own a, own a home. Uh, we actually did an episode on debt recycling. So if you're listening to this, just go back a few episodes, you'll see an episode where we talk about that in, in a lot of detail. Yep. Do, would you generally speaking then, what are your thoughts on principal and interest loans versus interest only loans? Good question. I mean, if a client has an owner-occupied home, mm. um, in our expert opinion, that loan only should be on principal and interest. Okay. So your portfolio should be on, on interest only. Yeah. So do you, and this is a more macro question or a philosophical one, yeah. what are your thoughts on paying down debt? Because I'll kind of talk to that for a minute. Let's say you buy a property on a 90% interest only loan and let's just theoretically assume that you could keep it on interest only forever, which may not be true. Yep. Um, as that property grows in value, the loan amount compared to the value will actually decrease, right? So over time, if you did nothing and didn't pay down any debt, Yep. Your loan-to-value ratio might end up being 50%. Correct. So, therefore, you're in a pretty low-risk position. Yep. Um, so, do, like, what are your – hypothetically, like, just like kind of on a macro-philosophical basis, what are your thoughts on, like, building a portfolio and never paying down the debt in the portfolio? Uh, yeah, it can work. Yeah. I mean, depending on the strategy, you know, do, does the client own an owner-occupied property? Do they want to own an owner-occupied property in the future? Mm. I mean, hypothetically, let's just say they have an investment portfolio – there's nothing against that. Um, I'm not going to get too deep, but yeah, I mean, paying interest only does allow you to borrow more money with certain lenders. Um, is that sometimes the other way though? Because I've also heard that some lenders will actually give you a higher, it's both, uh, yeah, a higher borrowing if you yeah. have principal and interest. So is, that's a it's, bit of a. It's, it's both, and it's like I said before, it's understanding which lenders do what. So, yeah, um, okay. I mean, majority of lenders are looking at the remaining principal and interest um, terms. So, if you've got a thirty-year loan term, you've got a five-year interest-only period. Most banks are assessing you over that twenty-five-year period, which is hindering your borrowing capacity. Mm. However, we do have lenders that take actual repayments on your existing mortgage portfolio. So, if you're paying interest only at a thousand dollars a month, in comparison to principal and interest at sixteen hundred dollars a month. Mm. Your repayments are less when it comes to assessing that. Interesting. Borrow- yeah, assessing that borrowing power for future for future purchases with specific lenders only. So, so that's one thing. I guess just to circle back to your question, Goose, I'm not against paying principal and interest on some of your portfolio in the current mm. environment. Um, you know, at least one of your properties or one or two of your properties are definitely mm. not against it purely because in the low interest rate environment that we're currently sitting in. Um, if it's your first property, um, what we tell our clients is every dollar of equity, or sorry, every dollar of principal that you pay down is a dollar of equity that we can access again in the future. Mm. So it does depend on the client's circumstances. Um, so, yeah. But, I, but essentially all you're doing in that case, you're just putting profit on the balance sheet rather than profit in the bank account, right? So you are. You are. Yes. For every for every dollar you pay down of your principal, and again, I'm, I'm don't have a, I've got opinions on this where I think it's a balance, right? You should be paying down debt and stuff. Not, I don't believe that you should just purely yep. um, necessarily max. It depends on the situation. But every dollar you put onto your balance sheet, i.e. pay down into equity, you have to ask the bank to give that back to you if you want to take it back out. So Correct. there's an there's an argument to say that you're better off keeping your, keeping your profits liquid so that you have control over them rather Correct. than putting them on the balance sheet and have to ask for permission to get it back. Correct. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, it does depend on the client circumstances. But what you said is mm. correct. I mean, 
like we would normally advise our clients if you are going to make extra payments onto your loan. Um, and what we often do, like the majority of our clients, we do actually set up, I mean, definitely investment portfolio. If they own an owner-occupied mm-hmm. home, everything is interest only. However, if they don't own an owner-occupied property, then you do have the choice. However, like mm-hmm. you said, having the ability to sort of have an offset account set up and having the money go into the offset account rather than the loan, yeah. which gives you more flexibility, which allows you, Mr. Customer, to take out the money at your choice. Yeah. It gives you more flexibility around that. So, yeah, I always tell my clients there's nothing um, hindering you from paying the equivalent of principal and interest repayments. Mm. We'll set you up on interest only, but you'll have Just the offset account. You can make mm. extra repayments, but put, in the, put it into the offset account, as you mentioned before. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, I'm mindful of time, but I want to dig into something else here because it's based around this kind of, um, you say bad debt, I say non-income producing debt, same thing, right? If yeah. you've got debts that don't produce an income, it's not an asset. Yeah. So, Rent vesting versus owner occupy, right? Now, the the simple way to th- the very simple way to think about it is yep. that if if you're if you want to live in a suburb where the cost of owning a home with the mortgage, for example, it you know co- is costs more than it costs to rent in that suburb, then it makes more sense to rent. That's a that's a simple way of thinking about it. Yeah, but it's not necessarily the it's not the whole picture, right? Because on the you're one right. side, on the one side, if you if because and I'll talk to a personal circumstance. Might, might paint the picture a little bit better. Yep. Um, we currently live. Uh, we currently rent vest, and our rent's pretty. Our rent is pretty low for the area, and it's great. Yep. It's awesome. And then, um, and we were thinking, wow, wouldn't it? You know, maybe we could like go and rent some, you know, amazing whiz bang flash apartment. You know, and then when I was sort of thinking about it, I was like, I wonder what actual impact that would have on our borrowing capacity. So, what does what does what does $1,000 a week of repayments on a principal and interest property versus $1,000 a week on uh, uh, on rental, uh, like paying rent, what would, what, like, what's the, I'm going to use those numbers only so that if they're flat numbers, like, what is, is there any impact there? I, I, it's not a direct question. I'm just trying to understand the relationship between how you might think about that. It is a good question. Um, I, I would say if you're paying, if you've got an existing mortgage repayment um mm. the bank often gears it to a higher interest rate so it's i guess it's probably limiting your, your borrowing capacity more so than if you were paying just rental mm. income of 650 a week and the wonderful suburb that you're living goose so um mm. yeah and what i mean by that is i mean the banks normally stress test everything so if you're paying three percent on you know your, your own occupied home for a thousand dollars a week when we're when they're assessing your ability to take out further credit or further lending they are stress testing it over a higher interest rate of around that sort of 5.5, yeah. 5, 5.6, 5.7%. So I guess to answer your question, I'm, I haven't done any sort of scenarios on this or play yeah, around okay. with any figures, but I would say, yeah, rental income from rent vesting mm. um, is less of an expense than ex- an existing mortgage repayment. Yeah. So, okay, so so if I was to be paying a mortgage, I'd be paying. Yeah. There'd be all these multiples on it, and they'd be seeing the liability, not just the cost, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But let's just let's just say let's say I earn one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, um, yeah. and which is ten thousand dollars a month, and I've just picked that number because it's a squared number and it's easy to think about. <laughs> um, but let's say I've got five thousand dollars a month of living expenses. Yeah. How how does how do the living expenses factor into the borrowing capacity? So if we just use this sort of debt to income thing, one hundred and twenty times five would be, geez, what is that? Six hundred thousand, right? Yeah. Uh, of available debt, but if fifty if fifty percent of my income goes towards 
expenses, does that mean I only have 50% of that available debt or do, do you have any kind of quick heuristics on how to think about that? Because a lot of people, the reason I ask is that, you know, I think people should live a good life and do all that kind of stuff. But if, you know, the money that we spend in our day-to-day to live a good life, like what is that impacting on our borrowing? That's kind of- It does. Point. Yeah. I mean, short answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, living expenses has a huge impact. I mean, there's been a significant focus on um, living expenses and, and banks sort of mm. going through, you know, all your bank statements and looking at every sort of expense and stuff like that. I mean, the bank has, all well, the banks have a, a benchmark um, living expense sort of category, depending if you're single, or if you're married, or if you've got two kids or dependent on your income or the suburb you actually live in as well. So it is a good question. Um, what impact does it have? I mean, if you go up below what the bank's benchmark is, um, and what I mean by that is you can't just say, well, Chris, I spend $20 a week. Mm. <laughs> You know, there are, uh, I mean, the bank will ask for your bank statement, so they will look at what you're spending. But if you are under the benchmark, I mean, obviously that's the ideal position to actually be in because that's going to mm. allow you to access more credit and borrow more money. But mm. if you then go above that living expense, as an example, I think two adults, two kids, um, the average monthly living expense is around sort of $4,500 per month. Mm. If you're spending five and a half or $6,500 per month, that's an extra one or $2,000 a month that they have to factor in as a liability, which is obviously hindering the maximum yeah. amount that we could sort of get you in terms of lending. So, yeah, it's a good question because, yeah, definitely the banks are more focused on that as of late. And it's something we do. Often we put plans in place with clients. We'll say, hey, you're spending too much. Go away. Let's come back in a couple of months. You know, really restrict the spending that you're doing. Really restrict the dinners and the the entertainment and everything else you're going out to do. And, um, yeah, come back to us, obviously, when it's a little bit cleaner and you're, uh, you're going to be able to access more credit that way. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it makes heaps of sense. Now, that's good. I, mate, I think we've tackled, tackled quite a fair bit in this episode. What do you reckon? Is there anything we've missed out? Is there anything that, like, kind of the general running theme for this episode has been how to access, how, how to maximize your access to credit and to continue to be able to borrow and buy multiple properties? Is there anything that we missed along that kind of general theme that you think we should throw in there? Uh, I don't think anything we've missed, we've covered it all really. So I guess the ability to, to, to build a team around you. So mm-hmm. having access to a investment um, focused broker or brokerage company, I think mm-hmm. is really important to continue to grow that por- mm-hmm. um, portfolio to access more credit. Don't mm-hmm. focus on the interest rate. Um, it's mm-hmm. all about access to credit, as we mentioned before. So yeah, you know, don't just because it's got a 3.7 in front of it. If that, lend- if that bank is actually lending you more money, you know, mm. don't focus on that so much. Um, yeah, I guess the impact of yields, you know, high cash flow prop- properties, you know, what impact does that have? That's, that has a positive impact on your borrowing capacity. That can stretch mm. your borrowing power a lot more. The impact of living expenses as well, you need to look at that. Um, you know, having, I guess, the correct loan structures and paying down bad debt and things like that as well. So I think we've covered most of it, mate, but um, I'm sure there's going to be probably plenty of questions when people are listening and they yeah, contact us to uh, or fire. absolutely. If people did want to contact you and 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 you know get in touch and speak to you, where would they go? Uh, I mean, we've got the the Facebook page, we've got yep. um, LinkedIn page, we've got the where they just go on Facebook page. and search for unconditional finance. They go to unconditional. What's your website? Yeah, unconditionalfinance.com.au. You can look us yep. up on Google. You can Chris at unconditionalfinance.com.au. More than happy to answer any questions. Um, they can yep. come by yourselves and. Yep. You know, they can obviously direct them, direct the clients back to us. So, yeah, just yep. look for us. Unconditional Finance, based in Sydney. We do service clients Australia-wide. So, I will highlight yep. that we we are not Sydney-focused. I actually have probably 
the least amount of Sydney clients that any broker would have based in Sydney. So we do work with clients all over Australia. Yeah, awesome. Nice one. Well, mate, thanks so much. It's been really, it's actually been really, really good and fun to kind of dig into all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I love digging into the the finance side of things and thinking about how to make that better and how to how to make sure we're navigating this in better ways and achieving more and doing more and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, mate, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And let's do it again soon. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Chris.